Let's turn back to Daniel and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, you know each one of us and we thank you now for this time to come to your word. Uh, We pray that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, reassure us, challenge us, comfort us and draw near to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of the books that um, people love the most are detective stories. Um, maybe some of you are big fans. They seem to have an enduring appeal. Um, Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, Miss Marple, and co. They have been uh, entertaining people for decades, haven't they? And it's no surprise. Um, there's something about crime, something about mysteries and secrets that human beings find very intriguing. And this kind of thing, it creeps into our everyday language. We talk about secret ingredients, uh, mystery guests, hidden clues, what kind of things, what lies beneath the surface. And Daniel chapter 2 is all about these things. This is a chapter about one big secret. And who has the power to reveal that secret? It tells us in the words of verse 28, a kind of key verse for the whole chapter, I think, that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And what I want to do tonight as we look at this chapter is look at it from his perspective. This is a really good instinct to develop whenever we read God's word, as we come to any part of scripture to to ask this question, what is God doing here? What is God doing in this text? Before we think about ourselves, We start with him. God is the author of Scripture, but God is also the subject of Scripture. And in Daniel chapter 2, I think we see God doing at least, well, I'm going to focus on four things. And as we begin, as we look at verses 1 to 16, I think the first thing we see God doing here is frustrating human power. Frustrating human power. And it all began with the sleepless night. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. His sleep left him. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, he had raided Judah. He'd captured God's people. He'd desecrated their temple. So he is a man at the absolute height of his power. He's in charge of a great empire. He's surrounded by loyal advisors, and yet he's deeply troubled. Now, our sympathies are to be with Daniel in this story, but I'm sure that we can all relate. Dreams are weird. Okay, Dreams are weird. There's a, a, a takeaway from the sermon tonight. Dreams are really weird, aren't they? Um, I once heard, and I don't know if this is Uh, true because I've got absolutely no idea how you could check but apparently our most vivid dreams happen just before we wake up and dreams can be vivid unsettling and different worlds can merge in our dreams they can leave us very perplexed people who've never met in our dreams meet each other or is that just me I don't know Um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is like that it's unsettling 
And notice his response. He summons all his mystical advisors. He commands them to come into his presence. And he gives them an impossible task. Tell me my dream. Get inside my head. Tell me what happened in my head. And then explain it all to me. And if you can't, I'll have you killed and destroy your homes. It's a nightmare, isn't it? And what strikes me about Nebuchadnezzar is how irrational he is, how desperate he is here. He's totally lost perspective. And the magicians, they know this. In verse 7, they try to explain that what he's asking is just impossible. Maybe if you told us the dream, we could try and interpret it for you. But he doubles down. And we get the magician's final answer in verse 10. There is not a man on earth who can do this. Now, it's interesting how they, keep, uh, how they speak to the king. They keep calling him king. They say they want him to live forever. I've got no idea why they would want him to do that. They compare him to other great and uh, wonderful, powerful men in verse 10. They're probably doing that out of fear. But all of this kind of king language, it only serves to highlight that Nebuchadnezzar is just like them. He is powerless. The thing the king asks is difficult, verse 11. You bet it is. I was trying to think of an illustration here. I think he reminds me of Darth Vader. I won't do the voice, but Darth Vader is terrifying, isn't he? Every time Darth Vader comes on the screen, we hold our breath, and his officers, they all walk around on eggshells. And Nebuchadnezzar is a bit like that. He's got everything out of proportion. Um, Death is not a fitting penalty to mete out to your close advisors if they can't read your mind, can't interpret your dreams. It's not treason, is it? This man has gone crazy. And Bob File, a really helpful commentator, he says that what Nebuchadnezzar is discovering is that there is a realm that he can't control. A realm that he can't control. There's a place where his power, where it can't reach. There's a place the magicians can't reach. And that makes him very angry. Friends, this is how human leaders often behave. And history is littered with megalomaniacs like this. And when they're made to look weak, when they feel that they're starting to lose power, what do emperors do? Emperors strike back. Emperors strike back. Don't be surprised when that happens. This is the kind of world that faithful believers often find themselves in. These are the kind of leaders that they often encounter. And it's why Daniel stands out so much, isn't it? In verse 13, he's just so different. He keeps his head when all around are losing theirs. And he just asks a question. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, How doing that, how asking a question can often diffuse a situation. Why is the king in such a hurry? 
He's calm. He's Mr. Cool under pressure. He's Mr. Courageous. He's a, a true leader. So God is frustrating. God is exposing human power here. He's reminding us that there are limits to it. He's showing us that human power is more fragile than it sometimes looks. And so let this potentate, let his impotence remind you that Jesus is not so limited. There's a second thing in verses 17 to 24. Verses 17 to 24, I think we see God hearing genuine pleas. Hearing genuine pleas. In verse 17, Daniel leaves the presence of the king. He goes back to his home. Try to imagine what's going through his mind at this point. I mean, it's a a matter of life and death, isn't it? He's uh, gone out and, and asked the king for a chance to do the impossible. He's got one shot. And the way he behaves in these circumstances, I think it's really instructive for us. Look at the step, the next step Daniel takes. He's a great example here. He talks to his friends and he asks them to pray. So always the best thing to do in a crisis, isn't it? But before we uh, look at what happens next, I want to come back to something I said last Sunday. Uh, Last Sunday, I said that there were two ways that you could uh, divide up Daniel. And I know lots of you have been wondering all week, what is it? And what is that that second way that we can uh, divide up Daniel? It's been the big topic of conversation over dinner, hasn't it? Well, Daniel is usually divided uh, in two. Chapters 1 to 6 are the stories. Chapters 7 to 12 are the visions. But there's another way. Daniel can be divided linguistically. And we see this in the text. If you look back at verse 4, look at what it says there. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, In the original language, until this point in the book of Daniel, it's all been written in Hebrew. But then suddenly it changes. And from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way until the end of chapter 7, it's in Aramaic. Then in chapter 8, it goes back to Hebrew until the end of the book. Now the scholars, they, they absolutely love this kind of thing. They go crazy trying to work out what's this uh, Aramaic chunk doing here. I think the view that I find persuasive is that Aramaic was a, a more widely known language than Hebrew. And so chapters 2 to 7, they seem to have a, a universal message. And I think this makes sense of what we saw in chapter 1. It was a chapter really addressed to God's people, wasn't it? It was encouraging them to be faithful in a hostile world. And yet chapters 2 to 7, they have a message for the world and the church. As we've seen already, the rulers of the nations, they're being shown their powerlessness. Now we're going to come back 
to this idea uh, later as we move through uh, this book. We'll see connections within chapters 2 to 7. And chapter 2 is similar to chapter 7, 3 to 6, 4 to 5. But let's look back at the prayer. One of the commentators points out a detail it's easy to miss. If you look at verse 17, with all this talk of different languages, do you notice that Daniel, uh, Daniel's friends, they're, they're, they're named by their Hebrew names. They're not named by the, the names they were, uh, they were given by the Babylonians. It's interesting. They're, they're in Babylon. They're under pressure. But they have this enduring identity. They pray. God answers. Daniel gets a night vision. Now, you and I, we'd love to know the, the mechanics of all of this. How did it actually happen? But what matters most is that God answered that prayer. God left Daniel in no doubt that he knew the answer to the king's dream. And Daniel responds with a psalm in verse 20. It's packed with descriptions of what God alone can do. Wisdom and might belong to him. Knowledge and and understanding are his. The seasons and rulers are his to change. He reveals deep and hidden things. Daniel is in awe of God. He knows there are things God knows that you and I don't know. And he knows in the words of Shakespeare, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. More going on than meets the eye. I wonder if you ever think about that. God has told us everything we need for life and godliness. But there are other things God knows, and you and I don't know them. There are mysteries, even in our lives, things we don't understand, but God understands them. God knows what's in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Friends, that's the kind of God we can worship. That's the kind of God big enough to hear our prayers, even our most desperate prayers. But I think there's a third thing we see God doing in this chapter. In verses 23 to 45, here's the third thing God is doing. God is revealing concrete plans. God is revealing concrete plans. You'll excuse the pun. I couldn't resist the word concrete when talking about the statue, and we'll come to that in a moment. But in verse 25, Daniel's brought to the king. He's asked if he's up to the task. But look at Daniel's response. Look at the first word the king hears, verse 27. It's the word, no. No one can do what you've asked. But there is a God in heaven. There is someone who can reveal this mystery to you. And do you see how Daniel, he, he deflects any praise away from himself. And he's unafraid to tell the king, someone is more powerful than you. But I think what's interesting is that even by verse 30 in this, this long chapter, 
even by verse 30, we still have absolutely no idea what the king has dreamt. Daniel has been told. He's, he's praised God for it. But all of us are still in the dark. Even the way the chapter is structured creates suspense. It, it makes the point. Only God knows what this dream is all about. And the big reveal comes in verse 31. After all the wondering, we finally get in on the secret. You saw a great image, he says. It was bright and frightening. Its body was made of different elements, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay. Then came a stone no human hand had cut. It struck the feet of the statue. It crashed to the ground. It was like chaff in the wind. But the stone remained and grew and became a great mountain. That's what he dreamt. But so what? Well, Daniel makes the mystery known in verse 36. The different elements are, are different kingdoms, he says. You're the head of gold, but other kings will come. Empires rise and fall. But one day a different kind of kingdom will come. It will finally be seen. This will be a kingdom that God has been, been building in the background, behind the scenes of history. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. The, the interpretation is sure. A kingdom is coming that is not of this world. Someone suggested that, um, that the four different elements here, they, they represent the tendency of human power to degenerate. And I think that's really helpful. We, we love talk of progress, don't we? But the Bible seems to suggest that human power has a kind of downward spiral sort of tendency. It goes from gold to silver to bronze to clay. Lots of commentators, they, they believe that the elements here represent four different empires. The gold, Babylon, the silver, Medo-Persia, the, the bronze, Greece, and the iron clay kingdom, Rome. And I think that, that makes sense to me, that interpretation. It was said that Alexander the Great, when he discovered there were no more worlds to conquer, that he wept. His Greek empire it had a global feel, the kind of global feel you see at the end of verse 39. And it was also during the Roman Empire that Christianity started to spread, when the God of heaven established his true kingdom, when Jesus came. It was a kingdom that, that seemed so tiny, wasn't it? And yet think how much it's grown. Think how far it's spread. A few weeks ago I said that um, if you wanted to sum up the Bible, you could pick a, a great work of literature, War and Peace. But there's another book that we could choose, A Tale of Two Cities. The heavenly city, the earthly city, that is what God is doing in, in history, building his heavenly city in the midst of the earthly city. God is still doing that. And one day the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. 
Friends, I hope that, that Daniel's words tonight stabilize us. And we're living at a time, aren't we, where it's so much in our culture and just feels like it's moving around. Things that once seemed so certain, no longer so. But there is another kingdom. There is another king. Jesus is building his church all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing. God has a plan to bring all things under the reign of his son. And so when you are shocked to the core by suffering or sin, remember that kingdom. Remember that king, your king. Remember that one day that the curtain of history will be pulled back and you and I will see Jesus on his throne. Friends, sometimes isn't it the case that, that that thought is the only thing that keeps God's people on their feet? Everything else is, is crashing around me, but Jesus is still Lord. So Daniel's telling us uh, lots of things I think we need to hear tonight. He's showing us God, God who frustrates human power. God who hears heartfelt, genuine pleas. God who has got sure, certain plans. But I think there's a final thing, verses 46 to 49. In these verses, the, the closing part of the chapter, we see God receiving fitting praise. Receiving fitting praise. Now, I don't know about you, I, th I think these verses are a little bit unusual, aren't they? Uh, Daniel's just told Nebuchadnezzar that, that there are kingdoms coming after his. Just told this rather crazy guy that uh, one day his kingdom is going to come to an end. And I think given how Nebuchadnezzar behaves at the beginning of the chapter, I would have expected him to be livid. And yet, look how he responds. Truly, your God is the God of gods and King of kings and a revealer of mysteries. He, he falls prostate. And he, he takes those words on his lips. He, he promotes Daniel. He gets low. He raises Daniel and his friends high. It's, it's such a change, isn't it? How genuine is it? That's the question we have, isn't it? Next week, we'll see that um, his ego is still pretty big. And yet, in one sense, what matters most here is that at the end of this chapter, at the end of Daniel 2, God is being praised. I said last week that God has a principle. And this is the principle. They that honor me, I will honor and we see it here. Sometimes Christians experience that in this life. They're, they're loyal to Jesus. And instead of persecution, they, they experience blessing here and now. But even if that doesn't happen, well, friends, there's still a day of glory to come, a day of reversals. The Apostle Paul brings this home to us in Ephesians. He tells us that, that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, 
And what is that mystery? It is to unite all things in Christ. He has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us in the heavenly realms. And in the coming ages, he will show the riches of his grace to us. Friends, let that reversal, let the end of Daniel chapter 2 point you to that reversal. One day knees will bend, even royal knees. And Christians who were once supposed, they will live before God's throne. Well, hymn writer captures how we feel as we long for that day. He writes, we know not, oh, we know not what joys await us there, what radiance of glory, what bliss beyond compare. Jesus in mercy bring us to that dear land of rest who are with God the Father and Spirit ever blessed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the destiny of this universe is that the Lord Jesus Christ will be seen to be king. He will rule and reign and all will fall in worship at his feet. How we thank you that we have such a wonderful king and we praise him this evening. Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank you for all that you are to us, all that you have done for us. We come and worship you tonight, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.